Attack of the Final Girls is a podcast about the horror genre, so listener discretion is advised. Please check the show notes for specific content warnings for this episode. And of course, beware of spoilers. Welcome to Attack of the Final Girls. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. And happy Pride Month. Woo! (laughs) (laughs) This is, uh, the movie we're covering today is not what I would call totally a queer horror film, but there are elements of sex and love and loving who you want and being with who you want. So we're kicking off Pride Month with this one because... There is one pivotal scene uh, that I think we'll be talking about that captures the spirit of pride. (laughs) Uh, We are talking about X, uh, Ty West's film from 2022. Do you want to give us just a a brief overview summary? (laughs) Yes. So X is set in 1979 in Texas, in like the middle of crazy farmer Texas, and a bunch of filmmakers and porn stars go to make a porn and chaos ensues. <laughs> That's <laughs> pretty much it. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, yeah, on the surface. Yeah. The, yes, absolutely. This one was highly anticipated for, for sure. us and for a lot of folks. And I think it's really interesting sort of the expectations versus what actually happened because, of course, everyone was saying a horror film set in Texas in 1979. Yeah. Texas Chainsaw. Right. Yeah. So I liked Ty West's movies before I saw this one. I had only seen, I think, a couple of them. Like I saw um, The House of the Devil, which I love, Mm -hmm. from 2016. Um, Loved it. I think that Ty West has this incredible ability to make you feel like you're in a time period. He does that in House of the Devil. He does it in this. Also coming right off the heels of knowing that there is a Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie coming out that was going to be in 2022, which already came out. And then seeing this, you're kind of like, okay, competing Texas Chainsaws? Because I think the Netflix Texas Chainsaw came out before, like Uh, first. Yeah, like maybe like a week or two before. Right. It was just before. Mm -hmm. And then this one came out and it was like... Are we getting competing like TCM level slashers or what exactly is happening? But honestly, this was so refreshing that it was not at all a TCM movie. Yeah, not at all. Yeah, not at all. Other than it was set in Texas in the 70s. Right. Yep. There's no chainsaws. No, there, there are zero <laughs> chainsaws. There's no implied or overt cannibalism. No, there's no, there's no mask wearing. There's no skin wearing of any kind. No, there's no awkward dinner scenes. There's no semi ancestral slash like inappropriate familial relationships. Yeah, none of that. None of that. It's just set in Texas in 1979. If you want an actual TCM movie, you can watch the Netflix one. Everybody hated it, but we I digress. We can definitely crack into that one later. I feel like we keep saying, like, yeah, we're not touching Texas Chainsaw 2022. Yet. No. No. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just gonna give a kind of summary of the cast. We have Mia Goth who plays Maxine, and she also plays Pearl, which spoiler alert, Mia Goth plays both characters, which I didn't realize the first time we watched no, it. No, I didn't either. Jenna Ortega, who plays Lorraine, she's like the, she's doing the boom situation. So like Mia Goth and Maxine, she's like the, one of the actors in the porn. 
Jenna Ortega is sort of like a set help. Brittany Snow plays Bobby Lynn, also a porn star. Kid Cudi plays Jackson, also a porn star. And then you have Martin Henderson playing Wayne, who's sort of the, he says he's the executive producer, also seemingly owner of the club that Maxine and Bobby Lynn work at. And RJ, who's like the main camera director slash visionary that's going to make their art house porn in the middle of Texas. And then you also have Howard played by Stephen Yuri. It's U-R-E. So so that's like your main cast of characters. It's just those few characters the entire time, which I love a movie that has a small cast of characters so we can really focus on their interpersonal relationships and not like a bunch of side characters. Yeah, and it's really nice because, you know, in that this is a slasher, we do get ample time to get to know everybody a little mm-hmm. bit before they just start getting picked off, which is really lovely. It's, yeah. you know, it's just a different type of slasher where you have a bunch of randos getting killed, you know, or people we like meet one second and see die the next second. Mm-hmm. And that serves a place as well. But it's always nice when you get to sort of know the characters, know the group dynamic, stuff happens to them prior to the murdering it's not just like people who are there for cannon fodder. Yeah, exactly. It's like we actually know these people and we understand them and we get their friendships and their love relationships and then it all kind of like unravels. This movie, at least based off of the trailer for it, it really did feel like it was going to be a West Texas slasher, which is great. West mm-hmm. Texas slashers, great. Texas is kind of a, at least West Texas, like the hottest, driest part of Texas kind of a wasteland you know like in between cities in between the big cities it's like a bunch of farms it gets really dry they always have droughts and there's not anything for hours at a time so we're kind of like set right in the middle of that and it's on purpose we find out from wayne our like executive producer slash like the mastermind of all of this he did it on purpose because they raised property taxes in the county so he knows that he can get more for his dollar which like sounds kind of crappy, but also keen business sense, I guess, because they're also shooting this movie on a shoestring budget. Mm -hmm. Like they go to a store and they buy like bologna to eat (laughs) for however long they're going to be there. (laughs) Glamorous production. This is not. Yes, exactly. He did spring for Bobby Lynn's cigarettes, though. So there's that. That's right. And Maxine's Linda Carter magazine. That's true. That's true. But that that's like necessary reading. True. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so on its surface, you know, bunch of young folks go out to the middle of West Texas to shoot a porn. And you think, okay, well, this guy, who this old man, Howard, who owns this farm, he's going to be the one slashing all of them. Right. That's like right. what it seemed like from the trailer. But It actually ends up being sort of a complex discussion about age and sex drive and sexual agency versus love and being a woman and being autonomous to make your own sexual decisions and things like that, which on the surface, you're like, what? And I think that's actually part of the reason why this movie got um, sort of like mixed reviews. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean... In general, I think most of the people I know that saw it were like, oh, yeah, this was great, you know. But it also tended to not fulfill the expectations of folks who went in thinking this is going to be a West Texas slasher and not this is going to be a sensitive exploration of how society perceives us as we age and 
I think people who were not expecting that or are have a harder time like accepting things on the fly, maybe we're not a fan. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, there's this whole conversation about like elevated horror and what is elevated horror. And I think based on the trailer for this film, maybe people kind of fooled themselves into thinking this wasn't air quotes elevated horror. And yet A24 put it out. And so like... Mm-hmm come on <laughs> you know i expect a certain level of i won't even say social commentary but thoughtfulness mm-hmm. in, in something that is put out by a24 horror or otherwise quite mm-hmm. frankly um you know they're kind of like along the same lines as like focus features in the early 2000s where they are putting out the movies that are you know have something a little extra right. than we see on the surface yeah so i don't know why it was necessarily a huge surprise to folks mm-hmm. I also think the thing that I really loved about this movie probably through some people, which is that you have a movie about pornography set in the 70s, and it was very intentional to be not an exploitative mm-hmm. situation of pornography. Everyone was enthusiastically consenting to everything that was happening. No one was using each other. Everyone was like down to be involved and of course we see some conflict as we get into Lorraine's character about her level of involvement versus the expectation of her level of involvement but I almost wonder if that's something that I think it would be very hard for people to vocalize but I have seen you know among some not just horror fans but movie fans where they're like so stuck in this like well, it's in the 70s and it's about porn so it has to be gritty and it Mm -hmm. has to be grimy and the film is shot beautifully. It looks like it's straight out of the 70s. Like the look and feel of it match perfectly, but they just gave it more of a modern sensibility when it comes to, you know, sex positivity, mm-hmm. to consent and all of that. And I wonder if some people don't even know how to verbalize that that bugged them, but it bugged them. Mm-hmm. We were talking about this like right when we first started the movie was how a movie can give you the feel of a certain time period, but not necessarily fall into the same tropes of, well, it was like this then, so it has to be like that. So, like, porn was exploitative in the late 70s, so it has to be exploitative now. Right. It's like, well, let's just show the not that. Yeah. This this is a fictitious movie. Like, the hill that you die on does not have to be historical accuracy. Yeah, this is not a documentary. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like, this is not Schindler's List that we're watching. We're watching X, a horror movie made by Ty West about a fictitious series of events. It's okay that not everything is exactly correct. Like, do you think that all of the clothes are actually vintage in movies made about the 70s? Like, it doesn't have to be like that. Right. It's the nice side of like what we talked about with Cursed, Mm -hmm. where it's like, you know, we don't have to always just because we're making a movie in an era where racism and, you know, misogyny and all of these things were not saying these things don't happen now because they do, but were more overt or more rampant or whatever. It doesn't mean that because our movie is set in that era that we can't tell a good story in the absence of those things. Right. Totally. Like, that's okay. Yeah. And we should. We should be exploring those things. Like, why not? Why chain ourselves to the tropes of that era when we don't have to? Yeah. Yeah, and the best writers can tell a story set in a historical period in a time or a place and not treat people like crap. Yeah. You know, 
yeah. not have all the characters, you know, any remotely marginalized character treated like like utter crap the whole time. Totally. And that is something that makes me always say refreshing when it shouldn't be. Right. That should be the standard. Right. Unless we're telling movies specifically about like, let's explore this particular thing that was happening at that time. Right. Then having that inherently happen is not necessary. Yeah. Yeah. If we're making a biopic or something that is not just historical fiction, but like you know, um, capturing a fictionalized version of a historical event, that kind of thing that's different. But yeah, in a horror film, like, come on. Yeah, like, that's, it always confuses me when people say, like, horror should not be political, horror should not, you know, (laughs) it should not, like, break out of these, like, these tropes. And it's like, that's exactly why horror was made. Yeah, that's why horror exists. (laughs) Is to explore the political, um, both literally and figuratively. It's to break out of genre tropes. It's to do all of these things. And I think that this is a perfect example of a movie doing exactly that. Maybe less so on the political side, more social, I think, like social commentary in, in Thai West movie. But this is a perfect example of like, we don't need to fall into the exact same tropes of social norms that we have in all of these other movies. Mm -hmm. We can make a movie where we break those down and kind of throw them away and say, all of our characters can be women with agency, women with choice, women with sexual agency. And also we don't have to fall into like tropes of people being like, well, those women are having sex with men right. that they're not in relationships with. Right. And that's really bad. Or like they're making porn, so they're whores. Which right. they do mention that in the movie. That That is kind of thrown away as an insult several times by both Howard and Pearl. But it's more out of like frustration than I think judgment of their actions. Yeah, and the women don't view themselves that way and totally. neither do the men that they're working with. Yeah. They're like, no, yeah, we're we're this is what we do. This is our job or this is our creative dream. Like we're artists making a thing. Yeah. And you know, and we're cool with it and we're not you know, it's not that tired trope of like, oh, I, you know, the tired stripper trope of like, I'm stripping because my parent is ill and I gotta pay the bills and it's out of desperation. Like, no, these are women I mean we see it in in Maxine, at the very beginning, she looks in the mirror and she says, I'm a star. Yeah. You know? And and throughout it, you hear, and it's with Maxine, it's more complicated because of her background. We learn much later in the film, but she's like, no, like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to excel at this. Bobby Lynn, same thing. She's like, I am invested in this project mm-hmm. um, and I have a say in it and like this is what I want to be doing. Yeah. And then Lorraine comes in middle of the movie, which it's kind of like on the nose, like, well, you can't just change the story in the middle of the movie. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> but she says, I want to be she hears a conversation, which this is a really crucial, interesting point in the movie that I think lost a lot of viewers where they're all kind of like sitting around at the end of the day filming. There's been lots of sex happening and they're all kind of sitting, chilling, eating dinner and just kind of like recapping the day. And Lorraine says she's staring at Maxine and Maxine like, you know, says, hey, don't stare at me. Yeah. yeah. You know, and she's had a problem with her from the beginning. I'm not really sure. They don't explore that necessarily, but she says like, don't stare at me. Do you have something to say? Just say it. And Lorraine basically is like, 
don't these guys have a problem? Don't Jackson and Wayne have a problem when you're having sex with somebody else on screen? And Wayne's like, no, as long as the camera's rolling, Mm -hmm. it's work. It's just work. Mm -hmm. And then Maxine says, you can't control who you want to have sex with. Attraction is primal. But you can't control who you love. I don't love Jackson. I'm having sex with Jackson. Those are two different things. And Lorraine's like, okay, I want to be in the movie. And, like, seeing her be able to break those two pieces apart, like, oh, love does not equal sex, sex does not equal love. Seeing her actively be able to make the decision to say, okay, I want to participate in this. Or maybe this isn't even something I want to do forever, but I want to try it. Yeah. I want to try breaking those two things apart and see what happens. I think that I could be good at this. I'm young. You know, I have a good body. Like, let's do this thing, which we can definitely break into that later because I want to talk about that with RJ, like that in the context of RJ. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it is good to see women making decisions for themselves. Mm -hmm. And the guys kind of taking a step back and saying, they get to make their own decisions. Right. I'm not going to police what they want to do. Yeah. And Wayne, very specifically, as the sort of person in charge, is very much like, he's not like, ooh, this pretty young girl also wants to be in mm-hmm. the porn. Yeah. He's very much like, if that's what you want to do, you should do it. But he is not necessarily invested in a lascivious way he's just like yeah if she wants to do it if that's the choice she wants to make cool go for it yeah great it's really nice to see because wayne looks like he's going to be your average everyday misogynist like no no you have to do this thing because this is what i said that you're gonna do yeah but he doesn't end up being like that. He's just really stoked to make a porn with this group of people. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I've got a great team. I've got this like art house cinematographer, director dude from school. And he says that he can make this like a new unseen thing. And I am just stoked to be a part of it and yeah. pay for it. <laughs> and there's this really lovely sort of context too about the home video market about the rise of the home video market. He talks about the fact that this movie that they're making is not going to be shown in the grind houses and in, you know, the sort of back alley porn theaters. This is going to be something that people can enjoy in the privacy of their own homes thanks to the rise of the home video market. And we're going to be on the vanguard of this. And I just love having that context of it too um, because when you look at the history of not just cinema, but the history of pornography very specifically, like that shift from, Mm -hmm. you know, 42nd Street and all of that to home video, the VHS boom. And then, of course, the eventual shift to the internet, things like Pornhub and all that. It's a part of like the history of cinema that because it's based in pornography, we don't often include in the history of film but it's important and Mm -hmm. it's important to see how technology really really influenced how this particular part of film changed and evolved and you know for better or worse so i love that they just gave a nod to that Mm -hmm. in the making of this movie well yeah because the absence of judgment and pornography created a huge market it was a boom i mean because you could go into a porn theater and then have to face the judgment, whether perceived or real, judgment of folks who are selling you the ticket, who are also in the theater, running the possibility of seeing somebody you know, and then returning home, 
But now with the rise of home video, you can enjoy all of those things that you like in the comfort of your own home. Yeah. And everybody remembers, I mean, all of us who are old enough remember every video store during the rise of VHS video stores, every video store had the back room. Of course. You know? Yeah. (laughs) And that is something that... um, has been lost. I mean, I love, you know, the space in which our partners both work is a former video store and the structure of the back room still exists. Yep, totally. Yeah, I totally remember that. That's <laughs> something that today's youth will yeah. never know. <laughs> the because young folks today of, of just wondering, yeah, what's back there? You yeah. know, or actually getting to go back there and being like, I never want to see yeah. that again. <laughs> like, nope, nope. <laughs> As a kid and being like, oh God, I've made a mistake. <laughs> yeah. A lot to chew on there. One of the cool things, though, that we see, which sort of like roots us back in reality and roots us back in sort of the social reality of what was happening in West Texas and what happens in a lot of kind of like smaller towns or like towns that are less connected via internet or what have you, is the constant running backdrop of the preacher, the evangelical preacher on the television that's playing both in Howard and Pearl's home and also in the gas station that they stop at. So I wanted to just kind of like make sure people know this movie is like not in absence of like any sort of like moral police or whatever. Definitely not. We are firmly rooted in West Texas in 1979. It's just simply that our characters are kind of like subverting that. Yeah, they're still operating within the world they're in. It's just for them, the reality of the preacher is that, you know, the fire and brimstone preacher of West Texas is in the background for them, Mm -hmm. not in the foreground. For them, something else is in the foreground. And I thought that worked really nicely with the TV effect that it was, you know, kind of this, it was always on an old TV, but they intentionally made it more of a blue sheen Mm -hmm. on the screens rather than a traditional black and white. And so it felt like this ever-present and yet kind of otherworldly thing and it Mm -hmm. gave us that separation from the characters like this is there somewhere but that is not their world yeah this preacher is basically like sex fiends the entire time sex fiends kidnapping people and all that stuff that's not really what his voice sounds like i don't know why i'm doing that (laughs) accent but but yeah he's just yelling about sex fiends and and i think he calls them preverts because i think he does yeah that's totally like a eastern appalachian and like Southwest thing is calling perverts preverts. I have no idea why that started. I would love to hear the reasoning behind it. But when you hear that, if you've ever had any kind of experience with older folks who grew up in those areas, they totally still call them preverts. It took me all the way back to like listening to my dad or like any of my family on that side. Like that's how they pronounce it. Yeah, yeah. Just nobody's ever told them differently. No idea. Somebody misprinted the Bible somewhere. (laughs) And so everybody was just like, yes, prevert is how we say it. That's it. That's what we're doing. (laughs) So really what this movie is, is less about these folks making a porn and more about Pearl, who is... So Howard and Pearl own the home, and then they are renting their boarding house, which it's not really a boarding house. Yeah, it's like a big cabin out on the edge of their property. And they're renting it to RJ and Wayne and the group of people. And they're making the porn in there and in the barn. So we're kind of interacting with Howard and Pearl sort of as like a renter or a lessee. 
And then as the movie goes on, we get kind of more a complex relationship between them because as we go, Pearl is seen sort of like being a peeping Tom, like on the goings of uh, the porn shoot. We see her in the window. We see when Maxine, because the first scene that they shoot is Bobby Lynn and Jackson having sex. So we have no other context as to what this movie is going to be about, except we know it's called The Farmer's Daughters, but they're like ready to go. So they shoot that scene first. And while they're doing that, Maxine goes down to this pond and she jumps into the pond. But then we see Pearl kind of spying on her nude bathing in this pond or yeah, I guess it's a pond. Yeah. And then we see her spying on them in the cabin as well and in the barn. So we're realizing like, okay, there's something wrong with Pearl because she is sort of like wandering around and and then um, Maxine later wanders into the house. She probably shouldn't be in this house because she just kind of walks in. But Pearl, well, Pearl had waved at her. Oh, that's true. That's true. So she goes into the house and they have lemonade together and Maxine is obviously uncomfortable. She's totally uncomfortable with what's going on because as soon as that uh, lemonade gets set down in front of her, she chugs the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And she's like trying to escape as soon as possible. But then there's this very touching kind of exploratory scene where you see Pearl really examining Maxine Mm -hmm. and like looking at her in the mirror, like looking at Maxine in the reflection of the mirror And, like, telling her how she doesn't appreciate, like, eventually she's not going to have this anymore. And then, like, touching her skin and things like that. I don't think it's supposed to necessarily be touching, but I kind of got, like, this sort of forlorn, like, how do you say it? Um, Like, forlorn reflection, like, melancholy reflection Mm -hmm. of, like, Mm -hmm. what was once a thing and now is no longer. It's a very interesting scene to kind of, like, take apart, especially knowing what happens later in the same hallway in front of the same mirror. But Maxine, clearly uncomfortable with this, and that's a huge theme in this movie, is how we treat people who are aged and also how we perceive them to be no longer autonomous. Yeah, really super interesting scene to see how revolted Maxine is or like how upset she is at how Pearl is treating her when she otherwise is very comfortable with the other people in the movie. I mean, she's the stranger, which I mean, you don't really necessarily want to be touched by a stranger. Right. But also specifically because she's older and I think there's some sort of like perceived cognitive, you know, Like reduction in cognition? Absolutely. So the interesting thing about that is the first time you watch it, all we know about Pearl is what Howard has told us, which is, you know, he keeps kind of emphasizing to Wayne and to the others, I don't know what you're doing here in this cabin, but I don't want it to disturb my wife. She's ill. Mm -hmm. And as you see Pearl in these first couple of scenes where we see her, She's kind of wandering around. She's kind of watching things and observing things. And because we only have Howard's context, our assumption as a viewer is not even necessarily, my assumption at least, was not even necessarily like, oh, she's peeping in on like the film set. It's that, oh, this is a person who is affected by some kind of, you know, whether it's 
Alzheimer's or just, you know, a loss of cognition, early stages of dementia, who is wandering on her land, probably where mm-hmm. it's it's safe for her to do so. And she's just, you know, kind of doing what she does every day, you know, wandering around, looking at things, etc. What we know about Pearl by the end of the movie, I have kind of a different view of uh, of those initial scenes. Yeah. Uh, because it was a very conscious, it was not a a wandering and perhaps not perceiving. It was a scoping out. Yeah. We know by the end of the movie. It was a very calculated, you know, looking around with that melancholy still there. Yeah. Because that is the through line for her. Yeah. By the end of the movie, you know that there isn't really anything wrong with Pearl. Right. I mean, she is getting older. We don't really know. I think, so it's 1979 and then the prequel is supposed to be set in 19 either 1921 or 1918 so long long time ago yeah that's like 60 years and she's probably 18 in that so i would assume yeah 18 to 20 so she's she's probably in this movie in her late 70s or early 80s which for 1979 is fairly old, especially because she's living in a place that probably doesn't have, like, amazing health care very close right. to her. Right, yeah. And Howard looks fairly old as well. Yeah. So she's older, but there's nothing actually wrong with her except, and this isn't something that's wrong necessarily, but she has a very high sex drive, mm-hmm. which we mm-hmm. learn later in the movie. And that's what she wants is to have sex. And her husband can no longer fulfill her sexual needs because he has his own physical ailments. He's just not cardiovascular. He doesn't have the cardio (laughs) for it anymore. Like he can exist on this farm. He can tend to the farm duties, but he doesn't have the ability to satisfy his wife in that way. And that's the only thing that's wrong with her is that she does not have the ability to find another way to satisfy herself so to do that there's some other things that have to happen (laughs) which that's probably i mean really that's that's what we're exploring in this movie is how we perceive folks as they age how we perceive sexual desire as we age it's like the last frontier of horror ty west is exploring the fact that nobody wants to age, nobody wants mm-hmm. to be older, nobody wants to die. He's confronting us with how it makes you feel to see somebody who is older have sex. Yeah, and controversial opinion. I'm just going to put this out there. So we had two movies pretty close within a year of each other that explore aging. And this is the better one. Sorry, mm-hmm. M. Night Shyamalan. You <laughs> no, know? But like, hands down, this movie yeah. is better than old. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we're exploring aging, examining our feelings of when we are confronted with seeing something that we've lost, seeing uh, our youthful bodies reflected in somebody else, and seeing the fact that we can't do those things or we no longer want to do those things that we once really enjoyed. Well, and seeing in a very visceral manner the thing that you hear a lot of a lot of elders say, which is, in my mind... I'm 25, Mm -hmm. but my body will not allow me to do the things 
that I did when I was 25 or it's harder or I get tired faster or, mm-hmm. or whatever. I mean, even like, you know, when I think of myself as a 22 year old and I think of myself now in my late 30s, I'm like, ooh, yeah, can't do the late nights, you know, five <laughs> nights in a row anymore, that yeah. kind of a thing. And that's very real. And I think rarely, like we hear people say that all the time, but rarely do we see it portrayed on film in such a visceral way. And especially when it comes to sexuality. Yeah, because I mean, your body, especially post-menopause, can make it more difficult for you to be able to enjoy sex or engage sexually. But that doesn't mean that it's gone. It just means you have to adapt. Right. But this is is 1979. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and that's, you know, that goes to the myth of, you know, (laughs) women ourselves are barely taught about our bodies at all or things like puberty and menopause and the different stages of, you know, our bodies, let alone society writ large. Mm -hmm. So I think based on the uncomfortable shifting and the really uncomfortable chuckles I heard when we saw this movie in the theater, I think that there were a lot of people in that theater watching this movie that were made very uncomfortable by the fact that you see an older woman expressing sexual desire. Mm -hmm. Because they don't think it's possible mm-hmm. or they don't think that that's something that happens because we don't talk about it enough. Right. For sure. Man, it's like thoughtful in the way that they're exploring it because Ty West isn't demonizing Pearl for having sexual desire. Right. The demonization comes because of what she does in order to fulfill that sexual desire, which We're going to touch on that here in a minute. But I want to talk about, since we're talking about sort of like the kind and sad way that we view women who are aging, I want to talk about the soundtrack, specifically the scene with Landslide. Yes. (laughs) So right after Juliet and I watched this, we wanted to wait to um, cover this until it came out on demand and all that. But Immediately afterwards, I asked her, like, did you get emotional during the scene where Brittany Snow is singing, you know, Landslide? And we get Brittany Snow and Kid Cudi, who's playing guitar, with this very simple, you know, kind of stripped down version, acoustic version of Landslide, directly juxtaposed with Pearl, who has just faced rejection by her husband. Mm -hmm. Her husband basically saying, I can't do this for you. I'm sorry. My heart can't do it. And she's dressed herself up. She's put on makeup. And he says, no, I can't do it. So she goes upstairs and she's like removing her makeup and brushing her hair. And Brittany Snow singing Landslide. And I was like, did you get choked up? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Sure did. Sure did. And of course, that was the perfect choice of song for that. I mean, lyrically, that song is just like so perfect for that scene and i'm not just saying that because i am like a stevie nicks mega fan um you know anytime they use fleetwood mac or stevie nicks well in a movie i'm very happy on a surface (laughs) level but it was actually just a perfect choice lyrically and the way they were doing like the cross cutting and the sometimes a split screen instead of a cross cut was beautiful and i mean the lyrics of that song are about being afraid of aging and changing and the fact that it's scary and yet time marches on yeah whether we like it or not Mm -hmm. and yeah it was so perfect and it was so sad 
too, because you see this person in Pearl, and this is before we know about all of the terrible, terrible <laughs> things that she's done. But you see this person who goes through all of this effort and has made herself beautiful for her partner, this person who she cares about. Like, you can tell that she cares about Howard and Howard cares about her. I'm excited for the prequel to learn more about their dynamic because it's a very interesting relationship. Mm -hmm. And he, with such care, is like, I can't. Mm -hmm. And it's not cruel, and yet it's so heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was just, what a moment. Yeah, at this point in the movie, we have no idea the lengths to which Pearl will go to get her way. Mm -hmm. So we're just left with this like really sad like wow we're perceiving this woman who loves her husband but cannot do these things anymore with him and she's just spent all day kind of seeing these women you know use their bodies in a way that she's not able to do anymore with mm -hmm. her husband and just like wow this is a thing that i used to do and i used to really enjoy and i still want to but i can't yeah it's really sad. And I also love that in that scene, although it is, you know, I love the way she dresses herself up, mm -hmm. too. And that there is even discomfort in that. Like, I struggle to find the words for her appearance because I don't want to say garish. Mm -hmm. Because it's not garish. It's just that we are so unaccustomed to seeing Older women, you know, older women are so often just stripped of their sexuality and of the, of being beautiful and being viewed as beautiful, save for the select few movie stars that we see. And it's always this revelation when we see like, uh, like a Glenn Close or somebody at the Met Gala and they're like, wow, look at how beautiful this older woman is, as if it's some shock that an older woman could be that beautiful. Yeah. And so to see Pearl put all of this effort into her appearance and to be beautiful in a way that we are unaccustomed to seeing on a regular basis with wrinkles, with thinning hair, thinning white hair, you know, with a very frail body, you know, in this beautiful dress mm -hmm. it's just such a moment there yeah it's hard because on the one hand society you know views being young as like the peak the pinnacle and we're yeah. always trying to get back to being young without accepting where we're at with being whatever age we are so we're always like oh they look good for this age or they look good for blah 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 or Look at how much work they've had done or whatever. That's just such a common trope that you hear now. Like, oh, well, maybe they overdid it on the work. It's like, just let people exist yeah. the way that they want to exist. Yeah. Do they feel good in their skin? Then that's perfectly fine. <laughs> there was a whole Facebook thread yesterday where this person I know from the community was talking about how he, this is a cis man, how he finds a certain type of makeup look on women distracting. And boy, oh boy, did people read him the riot act. Well, good. <laughs> Which is good, yeah. But again, it's like, you know, this just factors into that. Like, there are so many boxes for women and femme-presenting people to check. Like, you need to be glamorous, but it needs to be natural. You need to wear makeup, but not too much. If, you know, you need to not look tired, which implies that you're older. You yeah. Know, all of these things. And it's just, it's ridiculous and it's too much. And it's like, just let people look 
however they want to look yeah. and style their appearance in a way that makes them feel good, mm-hmm. regardless of age, regardless of gender norms, yeah. regardless of, you know, how flashy or not they choose to be, how artistic or not they want to be with hair or makeup or clothing. Like, just let people do what they want. <laughs> like, if they're, if somebody's coming to you with obvious effort put in and they're like, I feel good enough to, you know, share myself with you or want to be with you, like, that's good enough, man. Yeah. Like, that's, yeah. that's a hell of a leap to get to that point, to have Mm -hmm. the confidence enough to say, I want to be with you. And you can tell that this is a moment where Pearl doesn't ask this, you know, maybe not frequently, but also that it's hard for her to come to this. Yes. Because she knows that it's hard for Howard. She knows that Howard physically, like, but she keeps asking, like, Mm -hmm. let's try. Yeah. And so she is knows that she's probably setting herself up for failure. And you can tell that it's also hard for Howard to say no. It's not just like, no, like, I don't want to do that anymore. It's like, no, I want to, but I can't. Yeah, it's a moment of great vulnerability for both of them. Yes. And you don't often see that in a horror movie. No. Yeah. Especially not sexually. That right. is such a different story. Like you can be vulnerable with another person in a horror movie. You see that a lot between like men who are friends, Mm -hmm. like opening up or women who are friends or like relationships, but you don't really see it sexually. I mean, not even in dramas. No. Or in like romance. Yeah. Like you don't see somebody be vulnerable like that, which kind of ties into another thing that I wrote down is People not wanting to catch feelings for a monster in a movie. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about this vulnerable scene. And then almost immediately after this, we see some shit go down. (laughs) (laughs) To to put it bluntly. So the body count begins. Yes, exactly. So Pearl gets rejected. So she goes upstairs. She gets herself ready for bed. She's wearing this like white gown. She takes off all of her makeup, takes down her hair, brushes it out. At the same time, we see RJ struggling with the choices that Lorraine, his girlfriend, has made. Lorraine has decided, I'm going to be in this porn, no matter what RJ says. And then Wayne talks to RJ. RJ's still not down with it, but he films it. He films his girlfriend, Lorraine, having sex with Jackson for this movie. Well, RJ is broken. He's just like completely, he can't. Although he accepts the fact that all the other girls can have this sort of like separation between love and sex, he himself cannot accept that his girlfriend wants to do that. So he sort of has this breakdown in the shower. And then he says, I'm out. I'm done. Let's see how far they get without me. He steals the keys. He's going to take the van and leave. Well, Pearl is not going to let that happen. I don't know if she knew that that was going to happen or she's just standing out there like she was getting ready to head towards the cabin yeah i don't know but it just so happens that rj stops the van and gets out and is like are you okay ma'am are you doing okay and then she goes to hug him and try to spark feelings of desire in rj and rj's like what are you doing and then he says let me go get your husband and she stabs him in the neck yep which i loved that like I don't need my husband. Yeah. You don't need to go get my husband. Pearl's I, got this. <laughs> yeah. I can do bad all by myself. Yeah. I don't need him to help. And also, I am a person. Like, I'm a whole person. Mm-hmm. So she stabs him. But later in the film, after most everybody is dead, I want to say 
minus Lorraine and Maxine. They're the only two people alive. There's a very touching moment between her and Howard again, where we sort of like come full circle. We see her do all these atrocious acts and Howard as well and helping her. And then she basically sits down on the bed with him and is like, can we please try? Like, can you tell me I'm special? Can you tell me you love me? And he confesses to her, I do love you. You've always been the only woman for me. There's something insanely special about you. And then they have sex. And it's filmed sort of unflinching. Like, it's not meant to be romantic necessarily i don't i didn't get the sense that it was romantic no no and it's filmed not shot for shot but certainly the overhead shot implies the same position that we see bobby lynn and jackson in the Mm -hmm. first time they shoot their first sex scene. Yeah. It's not the same because in that scene, we're getting a lot of RJ's perspective on the camera angles and stuff like that. But I think the base shot of that, that overhead shot of the bed is supposed to parallel like, you know, here were these these young hot porn stars having sex. Well, here we're going to show you, you know, two elderly people having sex mm-hmm. in the same way. And Maxine's stuck under the bed. Yeah. <laughs> Which... I mean, nobody wants to be stuck under a bed while other people are having sex on top of it. Yeah. Like, yeah. No, That's a no matter. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But she's hiding from them because at this point we know Pearl wants her specifically. Yes. yes. And we'll get back to that. Yes. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think that that's a part where... Ty West lost people. And I'm not saying that because I think that it was a a poor move in his story. But I think that people don't want to be forced to feel emotion for somebody who's a monster. Because while Pearl is a woman navigating a world where she is older and she doesn't have the capability of satisfying herself as she did at one point in time, at the same moment, she is a monster. She is actively killing horrible, people horrible things yes but yet we still feel sad for her and bad mm-hmm. and sorry that her husband is not able to do these things and we'll see obviously with the prequel really what caused her to go this route but forced to do things or perceiving that she's forced to do things to satisfy herself because otherwise she'll like internally combust Yeah, and the prequel is going to influence a lot of things, but at this point, it's delightfully complicated, and I know that there are a lot of viewers who want their antagonists cut and dry, you know, Mm -hmm. just like straight up evil. You know, this is a person who has killed people, who has raped people, but she is also a complicated person who is facing things about herself, about her position in time and in her body that are hard to grapple with Mm -hmm. and we can kind of come away from it with an understanding of both like I can sort of see her as almost two people you know in the way that the movie is kind of divided into two parts and they do a lot with split screens I Mm -hmm. think it sort of sets you up for having that separation but I know that not every viewer wants that in the monster the villain um, and not every viewer wants to go through the work of parsing that out. Definitely. It would be easier if it's two different women. Mm-hmm. It'd be easier to be like, oh, well, I feel sympathy for this woman and I hate this woman because she's done a bunch of bad stuff. But we're forced to see it in both. And I think that's like a kind of a reflection of the dichotomy of all women is like, 
women are supposed to be nurturing and caring Mm -hmm. and they're supposed to fulfill all those societal roles. But on the other hand, every woman, I think, dies, but like they're dying inside to break out of those roles and to say, I don't have to do any of this garbage that society as a whole has prescribed or the magazines or whatever TV shows. I don't have to continue to look like a baby for the rest of my life. I want to accept myself where I am and just live my life and feel good about it and not like trapped in these, you know, roles that I'm supposed to be fulfilling. Well, and let alone like, you know, the irony and or intentionality of setting this movie in Texas, you know, obviously it was made before the most recent round of ridiculousness there. And yet, you know, knowing how laws have manifested in Texas governing women's bodies or attempting to govern women's bodies, the very challenging, still challenging, although it should not be challenging notion that a woman can have sexual desire for pleasure. Right. And the purpose of women's sexuality can be just because a woman wants to have sex, yeah. not because she wants to conceive and, and have a child and parents. Yeah. Like that, it's really sad that in 2022, that's a radical notion, but it is still very much a radical notion. Mm-hmm. And we see that demonstrated really well in Pearl because obviously she is very far past a biological childbearing age. Mm-hmm. But she still wants to experience sexual pleasure. Yeah. She needs that. That's a yeah. part of her. Like, it's not just like... I want to do this thing. It's clear based off of how many times she approaches Howard about this and also some of the things you find out later. This is a need for her. Right. Well, and that's a whole other layer to that. Yeah. Of sexuality being not just like, oh, hey, I want to have fun and feel good. But like, you know, sexuality being, you know, I would go so far as to say a right of people, Mm -hmm. you know, like Mm -hmm. it is it is your right to be able to use your body in this way. Yeah. Definitely. I absolutely agree. Okay, here's an interesting thing. So towards the beginning of the movie, sort of getting off of Pearl and going towards Lorraine's arc, Lorraine and RJ's arc. At the beginning of the movie, Lorraine is going to be working as kind of a production assistant, like jack of all trades for RJ, because it's just her and RJ filming this entire movie. So, and who knows how long it's going to be. It's a porn. So, like, 20 minutes, 30 minutes? What's the max? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I feel like porn is probably shorter than a feature film in general. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. (laughs) Anybody know how long Debbie Does Dallas is? Because they actually talk about Debbie Does Dallas. They do. Yes, they do. But anyways, Lorraine is perceived to be the prude. And RJ kind of like pokes fun at her. Like, don't be such a prude when they're talking about, you know, making a porn in the van on the way to the set. And RJ's like, don't be because she's like. This is a this is a porn that we're filming, and he's like, "Don't be such a prude." Well, then Lorraine, did he not tell her that? Oh no, I don't think way? so yeah. at all. Yeah, I don't, because and he that's pa- fascinating. Too. He passes a script to her too as yeah. they're driving, so she didn't know what the script was. She yeah. doesn't have any idea what's happening with these folks, and then as they're going, she's like, "This is a this is going to be a porn," and he's like, "Don't be such a prude." But then when she exercises her agency to be a part- willing participant in this, he's like, well, no, you can't be. Mm-hmm. RJ is fully down with the way that Bobby Lynn is expressing herself. She's like, it's just sex. And we're giving people what they want. They want to watch me have sex with Jackson. And that's that's what we're doing. We're giving them what they want. And Maxine, who is with Wayne, 
but still having sex with Jackson. Same thing. She's like, you can't pick who you want to have sex with, and I'm going to have sex with Jackson. We don't have a relationship. We have a working relationship, but I don't love him. I love Wayne, and Wayne's down with that too. So RJ is fine, and I think that this echoes a lot of what people feel now as well is like, that's fine that you feel that. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm fully yeah. down with it. I'm totally accepting. And then somebody close to you expresses that same feeling and you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, I'm yeah. that for them. That's <laughs> fine for them. Right. Like, I'm fully down. I can film a porn. But now that my girlfriend wants to express that as well, that's not allowed. I, she can't do that. Well, and we know we know nothing about the only person whose background we know a little bit about is Maxine, and that's not revealed until the very, very end. But we know nothing about Lorraine's background, her childhood, etc. But it's easy to assume that she has never been exposed to women making their own choices about their sexuality, and you can tell she goes through kind of all of the feelings of it throughout mm-hmm. this movie. It's shocking it's uncomfortable it's revolutionary Mm -hmm. it's inspiring to see these two other women that are like not explicitly saying you were taught this but we're living this but just saying like hey like we're happy healthy kind of whole people and this is our experience Mm -hmm. and it's okay and watching Lorraine kind of react to that is such a cool kind of microcosm unlearning of the patriarchy yeah and wayne calls her church mouse the entire time and it really is like reflection of the fact that she is a church mouse like rj makes all of the decisions for her Mm -hmm. she's on the back burner and then she's like no no like i'm gonna take agency for what i want to do and i want to try this and even if it doesn't work out like no harm no foul i'm here we're on the set it's not like i'm going out of my way to do this thing. And then there's a part two. Wayne takes RJ outside to kind of calm him down. Like, she's going to do what she's going to do. And uh, what does he say? He's like, who knows? If she hits it big, maybe she'll take you with her. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Because that's, it's not Wayne saying, I'm going to take them with me. I'm yeah. I'm going to be this huge producer and I'm going to take these women with me. It's him saying, hopefully, these girls will hit it big and they'll take me with them. Yeah, Wayne is such an interesting character because although he is the kind of leader of the group, he is very much down with like, we're in this together. You know, he is the middle-aged, cis, white, attractive man wearing a cowboy hat. So (laughs) you instantly assume kind of who he is in this leadership role. But he is very much like, it's obvious he views himself, you know, he's got these two other women, he's got this black man, Mm -hmm. they are all in it together. And he seems very invested in like, you know, our success is because of all of us, it is not because of me. And if your work helps bring us all along, Mm -hmm. then I'm here for it. Yeah, that's really cool to see that sort of character because you would look at Wayne and you would make a lot of assumptions totally about who he is and how he views himself in this group dynamic absolutely I absolutely did because you would think so like the the trope with a guy who owns a titty bar in Texas right Mm -hmm. the trope would be that he has 
several girls, you know, quote unquote, girls in his cadre that he has affectionate feelings towards and demands sex of, but none that he's really in a relationship with because it's all business, you know? Mm -hmm. And he also is the one that's like, don't do so much coke. Yeah, I I love that, too, because, again, like, you assume that, like, oh, he's feeding Maxine cocaine to stay compliant, and he's the one that's like, you don't, you don't need to do so much cocaine. Yeah, exactly. Like, Like, you do you, but also, like, it's fine. You would think he's the pusher, but he doesn't end up being the pusher. Not at all. He corrals all the folks together, and he asks that Maxine helps him do that in that way, like, corralling everybody together, but not that he's, like, forcing anybody to do anything. And he values Bobby Lynn's expertise and opinion. Yeah. Like, as an equal. Mm -hmm. Like, there are several scenes in the very beginning where he is asking and taking her opinion as a complete equal. It's not just like, oh, you're the pretty blonde who's, you know, the star of this porn. It's like, no, like... I value your opinion. It seems very much like it's not just Wayne's project, but it's kind of Wayne and Bobby Lynn's project. Mm -hmm. I almost wonder if they don't view themselves as kind of equal business partners, maybe in the club and in this, Mm -hmm. because they're kind of framed that way. Mm -hmm. Like they seem to be the two in charge. Yeah. And like Wayne's the cash, but Bobby Lynn's like, I know the business, I know the industry, I have experience, you know, so yeah. She kind of seems like the brains of the operation. (laughs) Like he's the cash and the slick talker um, in part because of his position as a man in this world. Mm -hmm. But she seems to kind of be the brains about it. And she, you know, we see her kind of talk about the psychology of the acting of it and, and the psychology of pornography and all of that. Like she really knows her stuff. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. I was very surprised because it would be very easy to fall into the trope of beauty with nothing behind it. Yeah. And that's not what we get from her. We get complicated and intelligent Mm -hmm. and business minded. And like, she's like, all of this is so that I can get a house that's paid for and a pool so that she can tan. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. She knows what she wants. Yeah. And that's really, that's interesting, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's. Maxine wants fame and stardom. She has cosmopolitan taste. Yes. But Bobby Lynn is like, no, I just want a house that's paid for in a pool. Which, yeah. I mean, don't we all in the summer? <laughs> Maxine wants this ethereal fame. And Bobby Lynn is more like, I want stability. Because when you think about, yeah. like, I want a house that's paid for, that's stability. Right. And that's almost acknowledging, she doesn't say this, but especially put up against Pearl, it's almost a an implicit recognizing of I'm not going to be able to do this forever. Yes. And so if I can make my money on what God gave me, as she says, Mm -hmm. right now and make sure that I have a stable life, then that's what I need to be doing rather than this ethereal kind of coke fueled. Right. I want the life that I'm supposed to have, which is fame. Yeah. So foreshadowing in this movie I was trying to explain to Juliet, which this was happening during one of the more intense porn scenes. So I was like, (laughs) I don't know if my brain is allowing me to focus this correctly. But this movie has a lot of like very literal foreshadowing. Yeah. Like (laughs) there's a part where Wayne says that people's eyes are going to pop out of their skulls when people see this movie. And Pearl stabs his eyes out with a pitchfork. And then we have Jackson saying that he's seen too many farmers, you know, 
with shotguns and that he doesn't want to get shot by a farmer because of his time in Vietnam. And we have... The mural with Bobby Lynn. Yeah, yeah. The the mural on the back of the Bayou Burlesque Club, which is a blonde with wearing something red getting chased by an alligator and Bobby Lynn who dies of an alligator because Pearl pushed her into the pond where there is one. And there's one about Howard, too. I think Wayne says something about, we don't want to give that man a heart attack. Yeah. He doesn't tell him what they're doing because he doesn't want to give that man a heart attack. Mm -hmm. And then Howard, who has a heart attack from dragging Lorraine back into the house. So very literal foreshadowing in this, which I think is something that we don't see a whole lot of anymore. Is like, this is exactly what happens. It's not just like oh, well, there was a knife held over their head and then later they get stabbed or whatever. It's very literal foreshadowing. In the context of some very not literal explorations of like all of these higher level things. Yeah. It's really an interesting juxtaposition between the two. Well, and I think it's that juxtaposition that keeps the foreshadowing from being really on the nose. Mm -hmm. Because... They're saying the thing that's going to happen, but you're so caught up in sort of the higher level things that are happening that you're just kind of like, okay, they said that. Oh, oh, hey, it happened. Mm -hmm. Um, And like, I didn't pick up on any of that until the second time we watched it. So it was really, really nice. Without sort of all of the other higher ideas, it would probably seem too obvious. Totally. Yeah, I didn't notice it either the first time that we watched it. Not until this time did I pick up on all of the foreshadowing. I also wanted to go back to when RJ and Wayne are outside and RJ's like, Lorraine can't be in the porn. She's a nice girl. And Wayne like gives him this look and RJ's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't mean it like that. Like, oh, they're all nice girls. Like girls who are in porn could be nice too. Yeah. And Wayne flips the script and says, let me tell you something. Or I'm sorry to be the first to tell you. None of those girls in there are nice girls. And I was like, Hell yes. Yeah, yeah, that was great. (laughs) It's such a cool subversion of that trope of, like, Texas guy with the cowboy hat Mm -hmm. to be like, these girls all have their own agency. There's no such thing as a nice girl. None of those girls in there are nice girls. So cool. And it was cool that Wayne was not on RJ's side. That it wasn't, like, the men buddying up. Or that he wasn't... He wasn't convincing RJ to give Lorraine permission to do it. He was telling RJ, she's going to make her decision and you have to figure out how to be okay with it. Yeah. And later on in the movie when RJ is dead and Lorraine is worried about him and wants Wayne's help to find him, he tells uh, Lorraine, no, just give him time to cool off. You don't need to go and apologize to him. Right. You didn't do anything wrong. He needs time to accept what happened. And she's like, well, I didn't want to hurt him. And he's like, you didn't do anything wrong. You didn't do anything to hurt him. You exercised a desire that you wanted. You wanted to try this out. You did it. And now he's got to catch up. Yeah. He just needs to catch up to your decision. So, yeah, I thought that was um, considering Wayne is older. I think RJ's like 20, what did they say? 23? 23. Yeah. And Wayne's 42. Mm-hmm. So there's a 20-year age difference there. It could very much be like a, oh, well, I'm sorry that happened to you. Yeah, you need to go fight for your woman type thing. And instead, it was like, no, he needs to settle down and figure out what's happening. And it's also like, 
it's easy when a movie is set in the 70s to be like free love and yeah. all that stuff. And I didn't get that at all in no. this movie. I did not get any sort of like hippy dippy, you know, like no, not at all crazy um, comp- like sex communes and stuff. I didn't get that impression at all from them. I got the impression that they're like sex and love are two different things. We take it seriously, but we're giving people what they want and we're allowed Mm -hmm. to do that. Mm -hmm. Not like in a group sex way or like in a free love way or like we all just need to have a big orgy and, you know, everything will be fine. But like, no, these are business transactions. These are my relationships. Those are two separate things. Yeah. What a refreshing thing to see even now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So the first time that you watched the movie, did you think that Pearl, there was something like supernatural going on with Pearl the first time? Yeah, yeah, definitely till the very, very end. I was wondering, I was like, is Pearl going to like steal their youth or something? Exactly. Um, Because you kind of don't know, like, yeah, it's framed as a slasher. But even based on the trailer, it's like, it could be a literal, very literal slasher set in the confines of the real world. Or it could be a slasher with a supernatural bend. We don't know. And so especially in the ways that Pearl is framed and portrayed at the very beginning, you're like, is she some kind of like succubus or mm-hmm. youth stealing yeah. something, something? Are she and Howard going to feed on these these young folks? And then, you know, at the end, drive off into the distance as, you know, young, beautiful people, yeah. which also would have been a cool movie. But yeah. Um, yeah, I definitely thought that going in. I totally thought that. I thought that she was some sort of like demon that had to steal youth from yeah. others in order to survive. And so I was like missing the idea that she was bisexual. So I, that's how I wanted yeah. to draw yeah, that in. Yeah, Absolutely. I kind of want to talk about buttering the cat, too. Yeah, absolutely. So we kind of see Pearl solving her own problems. Like when RJ's like, let me go find your husband. She's like, nope, and stabs him in the neck. To the point that she decapitates this dude, by the way. Um, (laughs) Not only does she have this, she totally has it. Yeah, exactly. Like, she's got this. RJ is nothing on her. Well, later after we see, so um, Bobby Lynn's character sort of like sees that um, Pearl is at the end of the dock. And so she tries to go and help her and like, oh, my Nana gets confused too. I'll just get you back to the house. It's no problem. I learned I learned all about this in nurse school. She's totally buttering the cat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, let me help you. You're so frail and old. Let me get you back. Rather than saying like, what do you need? Yeah, yeah. Can like, I help are you? Are you okay? No, she totally like takes that away from her and is like, mm-hmm. oh no, let's just get you back up to the house. You must be confused when Pearl's just like, chilling out yeah. on the dock like yeah. reflecting on the murders that have happened so far <laughs> yeah. but yeah she's like totally buttering the cat but then pearl is like you can't just flaunt your body in front of me and and then like the flip switches on bobby lynn and she's like okay well i don't need to help you then you're clearly just a nasty old bitch and then she pearl pushes bobby lynn into the pond and then an alligator grabs her and kills her yep. which is hilarious yes then Howard comes and says, is that the one that you wanted? And Pearl says, no, you know, I don't like blondes. So I'm thinking there's a shapeshifter thing. I'm thinking oh, like she's going to skin- like, take her body. Yeah. She's going to like skinwalk uh-huh. until her that body is, you know, decrepit. Like mm-hmm. the one that she's in right now. I don't want to mm-hmm. say decrepit. That's such a nasty, ugly word. But 
until it gets older and then she's going to skinwalk again and, and get another body. Well, then we find out what's actually happening is not that she, you know, is skinwalking. What he was referring to is want as in take for her own sexual, yeah. you know, plaything. Yeah. Because sort of the unwritten thing that we, because we find out at the beginning of the movie, there's something terrible in the in the cellar. Yes. We don't know what it is. We just know that the cops are freaked out. Then we know um, later that Jenna Ortega is freaked out. We know that there's something there, but we don't know what. And so that's like the thing that you're like, what is down there? The entire, like, two-thirds of the movie until you figure it out. What it is is a dead man that is chained up. His pans are pulled down. And they're, like, he's decomposing, but there are significant bruises over his pelvis and his penis. And so you realize what Pearl meant is that she wants Maxine because she wants her to be the replacement for what's chained up in the basement, which my partner didn't get that the first time that we watched it. He Mm. did not understand that that is what the man was there for. And Mm -hmm. I guess it's it's not necessarily explicitly stated that that's what it is, but I think we can infer that based off of the amount of bruises, the fact that his pants are pulled down. Yeah. And that there's no other, it seems anyways, there's no other harm that has come to him. Right, right. There are no instruments of torture or there's no like giant pools of blood or slashes on his body or whatever. Like he's, you know, in like hostel or something. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like this was strictly, you know, a sexual plaything. Yeah. That Howard helped Pearl get this man down into the basement so that she could pleasure herself, which, terrible. Yeah. And we don't know... Awful. Anything about this guy. We we know, like, he's really kind of a non-character because he's dead. We don't know his background. We don't know anything about him. We just know that that is what happened Mm -hmm. to him. Mm -hmm. And so when she's talking about taking or having someone... What they mean is, like, this sexual plaything, they need a replacement. And the one that Pearl wants is Maxine. She wants Maxine. And that's sort of, like, why we see her cuddle up to her in bed naked, Mm -hmm. why we see her uh, appreciate her skin when she's in the house earlier and why she offers her lemonade. It's because she wants Maxine for herself. She wants her to be the replacement, Mm -hmm. which, like... Totally makes that movie like I was not picking up on that at all. I thought it was a skin skinwalker thing, and then you find out like no, Pearl's bisexual and she wants a sexual plaything. And it's like, oh god, <laughs> this yeah. is so much darker. Yeah, because if it was like a skin a shapeshifter thing, it would be easy to be like, well, of course they want a young you know young woman. Yeah, yeah. No, it's because Pearl's sexual appetite is so high. She has to have somebody young to be able to, like, withstand what she's going to do to them. Which, holy crap. (laughs) Yeah. I like that it was so subtle in the case of this movie because they could very easily make her queerness the sort of monster of it. And we've Mm -hmm. seen horror films, especially of the past, do that in a very harmful way. Mm -hmm. And this was more like, again, like, it's the whole, like, parsing of Pearl that she is, like, 
a very nuanced and complicated villain. Like she does horrible things. But it's not that she does horrible things because she's queer, you know. Right. And I think they do a good job of like keeping that separation, but also sort of playing on that theme and that preconceived notion. If you want to think deeply about it, like what is one of the things that especially like that preacher would have said is that queer people are like sex fanatics or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, that would have been a view of queer people even in 1979. Right. So it's nice that they could play with that idea in a way that was not like overtly framing this person's you know, bisexuality or queerness in in the bad things they did. It was just part of her complicated, complex identity. Mm -hmm. And I think we're going to see more of that in the prequel because if I recall, I wasn't sure the whole time we watched the movie and it really bums me out that apparently the Pearl trailer is not on streaming right now. So we couldn't watch it again ahead of recording this. But I think that that is made clear in the Pearl trailer mm -hmm. that she is bisexual because we definitely see her with men and women mm -hmm. in in that trailer. Yeah, I totally want to watch the trailer again. I know. I'm really Not bummed. On the internet. <laughs> I know. So, like, as a part of the post credits, there's a trailer for the so like Ty West secretly filmed yes. a movie in prequel to this one because um, they were already in New Zealand and they already had all the sets built. And he was like, well, we have tons of quarantine time. Yeah. And I guess that the reason he wrote it is because this movie was filmed like when COVID precautions were in place, but movies could be shot. Mm -hmm. But because New Zealand was so strict on COVID precautions, when you got into the country, you had to be in like very specific like government sanctioned quarantine mm -hmm. um it was the same way in canada for two weeks before you could even like open up your set and start shooting and then there were all these like regular testing protocols and because he had two weeks with nothing to do he was like i'm gonna write a prequel yeah and that's how and then you know he's like i'm gonna write a prequel and i already have all the sets and blah 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 yeah yeah so it's like <laughs> at least one good thing came out of the pandemic, right? Yeah, like, exactly. Being able to do that. So there's a trailer, though, for that. And it's sort of like the trailer is very intriguing, but it's almost manic. Like there's so much going yeah. on. And we're set in like either 1918 or 1921. 1919. I looked it up. Okay, 1919. Yeah. So we're set like 60 years before this movie, this movie that we actually watched is set. And it's wonderful because it's Mia Goth, once again, who did actually play Pearl and Maxine in this mm -hmm. movie. Mm -hmm. She's playing, she's reprising her role as Pearl in the prequel, but it looks like it's going to be just kind of nuts. Yeah, yeah. In it's, a great way. <laughs> yeah, it seems like a grab bag of nuts. Yeah, It. so I'm really excited and I am really interested to see what ended up, like what caused... Maxine, or what caused Pearl to be the way that she is. Yeah. And how she met Howard, who somehow was down with this. I'm very curious about that. Yes. Like, yes. were they, because it seems like she's always been a killer. Yes. That, Based that on is the trailer. my assumption, yes. So did Howard know that? Has Howard always mm -hmm. been her accomplice? Like, yeah. yeah. Does he do this out of love, which is kind of the implication I'm getting? Yeah. Yeah. Or was he a killer too? And then they kind of, like, join forces. That, that's an interesting idea. So 
I'm very yeah. excited to see that. I wish that we could have watched the trailer again so that we could tell you, but hopefully it'll be on the DVD. We just didn't get to watch the DVD this time. We watched on streaming, which unfortunately it's not featured on yeah, streaming. Yeah, it's very weird. It's like an Easter egg that you only get by benefit of watching it in the movie theater, yeah. which is not actually fair. Yeah, but it's we, really not. We looked for it on YouTube and we could not find it on mm-hmm. YouTube or anything. So yeah. A24 is keeping that under wraps yeah and we don't know when the production is going to happen for that either but two last notes um i love that this movie reinforces the idea that women can solve their own problems yes without the assistance of a man like you don't need a guy to help you with your problems yeah yeah you can do bad all by yourself you can do bad all by (laughs) yourself yes and also the soundtrack for this as it is in all of ty west movies so good it's killer. It truly is. So good. I, you know, it's so funny. Um, <laughs> I feel like several of the songs on the soundtrack, I have strong associations with Rob Zombie movies, and I'm so happy to have them reframed in a horror context, mm-hmm. specifically Don't Fear the Reaper. Yeah. I'm like, oh, this is, the, this is a nice way to use this song. Yeah, watching RJ get his head stabbed off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, it makes, it does make me feel better about it, too. Yeah, yeah, I'm so. down. We're uh, not exactly Rob Zombie fans, so seeing a movie where they use a song like that, and and it is, like, it is in the crescendo of a kill, but, like, feeling better about it for some reason. Yeah, it just works better. I don't know. Agreed. Yeah, I have opinions about Rob Zombie that we don't (laughs) need to get into right now. (laughs) Coming up next time, we are going to continue our Pride Month coverage and talk about the perfection. So don't miss it. And uh, Midnight Mass episodes still coming. Those will be through July. So we have a couple more to get through. So as always, rate, subscribe, like it, tell your friends. Find us on social. Find us on social. All the things. Thanks for listening to Attack of the Final Girls. Find us online at attackofthefinalgirls.com. We're Attack of the Final Girls on Instagram and TikTok and Final Girls Pod on Twitter. Our theme music is by House Ghost and is available on Rad Girlfriend Records. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode and rate and review on Apple Podcasts so more people can find the show. I'm Juliet. And I'm Teresa. Until next time, stay scary. Stay scary.